You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations and companies, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. Now, if you're a fan of this podcast or you have feedback, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Now, in this episode, we speak with leaders from an amazing NCQA HEDIS recognized partner company, revisiting one of NCQA's cutting edge digital products. Later on in our Fast Facts segment, we observe Gastroparesis Awareness Month with important information that could save a life. But first, we've talked often about interoperability the capacity for clinicians and their companies to exchange data and electronic health records, EHRs, more easily. So here's what I mean by that. Quality healthcare in the United States should mean that you as a patient should not be limited to just one hospital system for a simple fear of your records getting lost or having to fill out the same forms over and over. Yes, patients should advocate for themselves, but the healthcare journey shouldn't be this frustrating, shouldn't be this hard. You shouldn't have to, for example, chase down your own biopsy results or imaging results. You shouldn't have to repeat your family medical history to every single face that you meet. You shouldn't have to worry about two different physicians prescribing you separate medications that in reality should not be taken together by the same person at the same time. Now, interoperability ultimately implies that medical staff and personnel, from primary care to specialist, from testing to pharmacy, have the capacity to transfer patient EHR data efficiently and safely and effectively. The bumps in the road, the the pain points as I call them, They're the same for every clinician. People worry about rising costs, uh, data encryption, the lack of infrastructure they might have to carry and store information. That's just to say the least. But there are solutions out there already for all of these issues, and we're getting there. In this episode, we'll discuss solutions to another potential pain point along the digital health highway, data credibility data integrity. Even if it's easy for you to transfer data inside and outside of your organization, you need to make sure that those data are correct and uncorrupted and secure. So toward that end, NCQA created our Data Aggregator Validation Program. This program evaluates the ingestion, transformation, and output of clinical data to support data integrity. When put into use by a data processing platform, Data Aggregator Validation evaluates and confirms the data that are being moved and tracked. More than that, the program supports companies seeking HEDIS certification because validated data can also be considered supplemental data for HEDIS reporting. But there's more, much more. With efficient validation, more data can be analyzed, shared, and parsed. More data leads to more accurate reporting, reveals healthcare disparities in populations, and can enable value-based models of care. But you know what? Don't just take my word for it. 
In this episode coming up of Inside Healthcare, we talk with leaders from one of the first companies to utilize data aggregator validation from NCQA, Coziva, a member of the original program cohort, is an integrated comprehensive population health platform. As a cloud-based solution for payers, providers, patients, and more, Coziva aggregates and transforms multiple data streams into actionable analytics and registry-driven dashboards in real time. Coziva currently provides healthcare data solutions to nearly 37,000 providers across 16 states. Coziva has been NCQA's partner in the digital health realm for many years now. As we continue the advancement of digitalization of U.S. healthcare data, Coziva remains a steadfast supporter in all of our efforts. Our data aggregator validation program now forms the backbone of Coziva's services. To discuss this further, we have two interviews for you in this episode. First, I spoke with the CEO of Coziva, Khan Nguyen. Following that, you'll hear from their chief technology officer, Rosh Singh. First up, Khan Nguyen is chief executive officer of Coziva. Khan has a doctorate from the University of California, San Francisco School of Pharmacy, focusing on health policy and management. She has over 15 years of experience in creative payer-provider collaborations. Khan is expert in data crunching, something we love to talk about on this show, discussing how improving and easing the flow of healthcare data will then improve efficiency for both payers and providers. If you have questions about any of the terminology we use in today's interviews, and, you know, it gets a little bit technical, but not too technical, just go like you can anytime. Go to ncqa.org, go into the top right-hand corner of the page. That's where you'll find the field for searching for anything you want. Type in whatever you want into the box, uh, hit the button, and you'll be able to find out all the answers that you need. But just to help you out a little more, I'm also including a link to a primer about NCQA's data measures roadmap in this episode's description. As you'll hear now from Khan, NCQA's ongoing partnership with Coziva demonstrates our commitment to improving healthcare quality in America and easing the classic pain points for stakeholders in healthcare today. Coziva has been partnered with NCQA, I want to say probably prior to 2013. Um, so it's been a long journey and a long partnership with NCQA. Uh, first, as a certified PDIS metrics engine, and over the years, really being the early adopters of all the programs that NCQA has, has um, released for the industry, um, one of which we're going to talk about today, which is the NCQA Data Aggregator Validation Program. Tell us about the program itself um, and your point of view for the significance of, of DAV. Uh, and also how Kaziva got into it, why you were so interested in the project. Through our lens at Kaziva, DAV serves as the industry standard for accurate, complete um, data of the highest level of integrity. And this goes end to end throughout the whole continuum as data flows through. So it's from ingestion point transformation of the data and all the change management involved in transformation of the data to output for HEDIS and quality program reporting. And as we think about what has sort of 
existed before DAV, before NCQA came out with the DAV program, standards to leverage supplemental data were, were very, very minimal. Um, providers, provider organizations, health plans needing to use supplemental data and going through the tremendous audit burden that exists with leveraging supplemental data was challenging. And Coziva really took on that effort on behalf of our customers to really be able to ingest CCD clinical data in a meaningful way to leverage it for quality reporting. NCQA's program allows the industry to really leverage clinical data in a meaningful way um, with the highest level of, of integrity and completeness. There are uh, people listening to the show right now who represent clinicians, uh, payers, providers from all over the place. And there are also people who work for companies like Coziva that are in the position that Coziva is in within the sort of the healthcare stream, the healthcare journey. Um, but I don't know how many realize that they can also pursue um, HEDIS measurement. They can also pursue HEDIS qualification. So talk about Kaziva as uh, a HEDIS qualifier um, and what it means to be going and utilizing DAV. Yeah, so back in 2013, when we first um, certify our metrics engine for quality reporting with NCQA, um, we, you know, support all of the provider organizations and health plans that leverage our platform for quality reporting with HEDIS, AMP, and very similar quality programs, CMS Star and the like. So our philosophy has been focused on leveraging claims data, pharmacy data, lab data, clinical data. So outside of claims, everything else sort of falls in the bucket of supplemental data and leveraging all of that data to show the accurate performance reporting across healthcare organizations. So when we ingest data, when we look at clinical information, we have that lens that is consistent with NCQA's intent for quality programs. So looking at clinical data that exists in a CCD document, for example, how do the vitals show up? What kind of information exists in the progress note? Being able to parse that information and understanding that data from a quality measurement perspective requires a deeper understanding of each of the data points and the data values. So we don't look at data exchange as just being a pipe for data exchange. We look at truly understanding the data, the quality of the data that we're ingesting and transforming for HEDIS reporting and quality programs. So being part of the first cohort, um, DAV cohort in 2021, through the last three cycles with NCQA, we've been able to flow um, over 3 million CCDs through DAV. And we're now in 2023 in the July cohort. Uh, and we anticipate that um, through this next cohort of DAV, we'll probably be flowing in upwards of um, 6 million uh, clinical records through the NCQA DAV program. And that is significant. If we think about all of that clinical information flowing through to support accurate and comprehensive reporting um, for HEDIS and quality measures. Talk to me about FHIR, use of FHIR uh, in healthcare, and being part of NCQA's first FHIR cohort, which is now uh, incorporating FHIR into DAV. FHIR standards have been around for quite some time. 
and um, fire standards, being a part of NCQA programs are really what's needed to propel others in the industry to really leverage fire standards um, and, and CQL, so clinical quality language models. So if we think about interoperability, if we think about understanding what's happening to the patient, what's happening to the patient journey in a much more real-time basis, if we think about patients going from different physicians, different practices, changing healthcare coverage, leveraging FHIR data outputs, FHIR standards, CQL and DAV allows us to do all of that behind the scenes in a much simpler fashion, leveraging technology and data. So what that minimizes is that minimizes chasing the data manually. That minimizes using humans, using resources to follow the data, chase the charts, and provide all the information that's necessary for quality computations. Next point to ask you about, the practical use of DAV when it comes to reducing uh, uh, data gaps. So you're talking about electronic health records, we're talking about EHRs and the patient experience. And so now we're talking about data gaps. Um, so give us your definition of what, what are you talking about when you're talking about reducing uh, data gaps? Yeah, and um, our definition of, of a data gap is um, when one healthcare organization believes that the patient is non-compliant for a measure, but another healthcare organization has data that shows the member is compliant for the measure. So we can, let's just use colon cancer screening, for example. The health plan may have information that says, patient is non-compliant, has not received um, their cancer screening. The provider organization has evidence that the member has received cancer screening and it was done three years ago at a different institution. But that information lives within the EHR. It is within the clinical record of the patient. So my definition of a data gap is simply that, that the gap is data missing and not necessarily care not given. And DAV in its core essence um, is creating the standards for information exchange and the ability to capture that clinical data, that cancer screening that was done through the EHR and through DAV, get that information validated to be used in HEDIS reporting. So now if we look at sort of the whole flow from the provider's EHR through the medical group to the health plans, all of that information now is flowing through and being validated by DAV and leveraged for quality reporting. So resources aren't spent on chasing that colonoscopy that was done three years ago or arguing about performance. There's still quite a bit of tension that exists between providers, provider organizations, and health plans when it comes to, here's your performance for X, Y, and Z quality program, you're not performing at the national benchmarks, right? And there's always a mistrust in the data. Well, that's not true. We have data that's, that suggests our blood pressure control is 20% higher. 
we have data that suggests our cancer screening is, you know, at the 90th percentile. So that data lives in the clinical data. There was one more point that you had in terms of a practical use of DAV, uh, talking about highlighting how DAV can help to highlight the most aggregate data uh, and to do so in, in true quality. Uh, and then as far as efficiencies go, you were talking about that gradually we'll then be able to add even more data points and to explore other aspects of, of various parts of the patient experience or various symptoms. Um, so we'll talk about highlighting the most aggregate data in true quality. So we think about quality reporting. We think about um, collecting all the data points to identify across the healthcare organization, how is the population performing in each of the respective measures, right? So be it preventative care, chronic conditions, et cetera, et cetera. So we think about leveraging all the different data assets from claims, encounters, supplemental data, standard and non-standard, clinical data, and bringing that all in and aggregating all of that data, parsing it and making sense of that data um, and ensuring it has the highest level of accuracy and integrity. That is really, in my mind, data aggregation. And now as you layer in health equity and sources of direct and indirect race ethnicity data, it becomes extremely complicated. And to take it one step further, quality programs will, you know, right now have a mix between process measures, preventative measures, and outcomes-based measures. So you think about, did you get your hemoglobin A1C screening versus is your hemoglobin A1C within control for a diabetic patient? That's outcome-based measures. So quality programs are going to evolve and eventually get to much more, um, a higher degree of outcome-based measures and the ability to aggregate data at the highest level and all the way down to your most granular um, data asset data point is needed. So we think about a future state, in my mind, a future state of really outcome-based quality programs at scale across the industry. Um, the ability to aggregate all of this different data assets is going to be critical. Tell me in your own words about how health equity can be improved also through more efficient aggregation of data and parsing of the data. We are just dipping our toe as an industry in health equity. And I know that that's been front and center uh, over the last few years um, across the industry, across healthcare organizations. And um it's really getting down to the level of data collection and really understanding how that data is being captured. How should it be stored? How should it be parsed? And what happens when you don't have enough direct data for a particular population? So amongst a cohort of um, provider organizations that we support, in California for AMP reporting, 60% of the race and ethnicity data that was captured were through indirect imputed models, which means only 40% of race and ethnicity 
were collected and sent to us um, by these provider organizations. And it gets worse across, you know, as you look at different uh, lines of business. So for us, what we have found and learned is, is the race and ethnicity information um, that is collected at point of care is a direct data source. Um, and it does exist at a much higher volume than what we're seeing in enrollment data. It does exist at a much higher volume in um, CCDs. So through our actually through our program, um, by validating all of our CCD data through NCQA DAV, we're able to leverage that race and ethnicity data that we're collecting. The purpose of DAV from Coziva's lens um, and the way it's landing and it should land in the industry is data accuracy, data completeness, data integrity from ingestion, transformation, and output, right? So being one of the first to a HEDIS certified vendor to participate in DAV back in 2021, and now pass forward three years later and being able to participate as one of the first vendors in DAV fire output. For us, it's being on this journey with NCQA and really being a part of this whole effort to transform quality and quality programs into the digital space. So we're, we are committed as an organization to be at the forefront of this. That's Coziva's CEO, Khan Nguyen. Coming up, my talk with Coziva's Chief Technology Officer. Everyone, it's time again to focus on the place, the place that inspires and accelerates healthcare quality in America. And that place is NCQA's Health Innovation Summit. For three amazing days in October 2023, the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida will host our annual convention. Bringing together leaders from across the healthcare ecosystem, the summit will focus on all aspects of quality, including digital solutions, health equity, value-based care, and more. It will feature thought-provoking speakers, one-of-a-kind education opportunities, and an exhibit floor just like last year, but only better, showcasing the latest in healthcare innovation. And I'm also happy to announce that in the coming weeks leading up to the summit, each episode of this podcast, Inside Healthcare, will include an exclusive interview with a featured speaker you'll see and you might meet at the summit. So keep coming back for more. Register now for NCQA's 2023 Health Innovation Summit. Go to ncqasummit.com for more information. And now for our next interview with the leadership from Coziva. Rosh Singh is Coziva's Chief Technology Officer. He was previously Vice President of Product Management, and before that, he was Director of Analytics. He has a PhD in Biomedical Engineering from Cornell, and over 15 years experience combining product management with AI and machine learning. He creates what he calls decision science, finding hard and soft tech solutions that support multi-billion dollar transactions. He knows interoperability. He knows fire. And after eight years there, he knows Coziva. Here's my talk with Rosh Singh. Coziva has an interesting history. We used to be called Zip Health. 
Um, and Zipheld was around the time when you may have also heard of other products like Microsoft Vault or Google Health. Um, these were essentially patient portals. And so Kaziva started as a patient portal. Um, so we, um, you know, we're developing essentially, uh, you know, just making it easier for patients to access the data. And this was, you know, over a decade ago. Um, we pivoted to population health kind of more broadly, you know, with tracking, um, you know, HEDIS measures and supporting, you know, workflows for care managers, and even, you know, in our history, uh, developing our own EHR. Um, so we've kind of approached, um, you know, interoperability from different, you know, vantage points, uh, you know, the patient portal side of things, you know, which is where FIRE um, started, right? It was intended to um, get to just make it easier for patients to access um, their data, right? So that uh, some of these challenges uh, that, you know, um, uh, you know, especially being faced a decade ago, uh, you know, when, because, you know, you have to understand around that time you had tools that people were starting to use iPhones, right? They had become very popular. You had, um, you know, smartphones, people were able to download any application it, and, you know, there wasn't this, you know, idea that, um, you know, data couldn't flow, um, you know, uh, as it needed to uh, into these different uh, application interfaces, um, you know, as, um, and so when FIRE, uh, I think, you know, took maybe some of that inspirations, the smart standard around the same time, um, you know, maybe borrowed uh, some of that inspiration from uh, just what, you know, they were able to see uh, happen in other, you know, parts of the industry. And so my exposure to fire, um, you know, was fairly early on, um, you know, uh, not, you know, when it was kind of conceived by Graham Grieve, but around, you know, probably 2014, 15, especially, you know, after it became popular um, with the, you know, CMS and kind of their blue button initiative to just make it uh, easier for Medicare patients to access, um, you know, data directly, um, you know, uh, without, you know, going through the loops, um, they would have ordinarily to get, you know, the medical information faxed over from relevant EHRs. If you considered FIRE itself as a standard, that would mean that it's the backbone that helps to exchange EHRs back and forth. And whatever the intended use was originally, that's that's more or less what it is. But you're going through the growing pains now of convincing anybody who listens to try to implement fire, even if they're making their own software, if you could have fire as the basis for it, at least you'd be able to have a, a chance to be able to exchange uh, uh, data, you know, efficiently. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, you know, you could think of uh, fire, uh, you know, maybe being like uh, Lego blocks. Um, you know, you can, you know, build a lot of things with Legos, um, uh, and you know, depending on the use case. So, for example. Uh, you know, I have two boys and, um, you know, they love their Legos um, and you can build a Star Wars ship with Legos or you can just, you know, uh, build a little, you know, figurine. Um, so each of them kind of come with the uh, separate, uh, you know, manuals. So fire, you know, it's somewhat designed in, in this way. Right. So it's very open um, at its core. Uh, it kind of defines a data model, um, you know, in terms of these resources, right? So when we say fire, we're talking about fast healthcare interoperability resources. And these resources are kind of like those building blocks. Uh, and they're not prescriptive, meaning they're not a specific 
a colored Lego block. They're not a particular shape of a Lego block. Those come in through, you know, um, depending on the use case, right? So if we're working on um, interoperability between EHR, uh, you know, there we uh, typically adopt, you know, what's referred to as the US core implementation guide. And there, now we're really talking about having a manual um, and using specific versions of those resources where certain data is stated to you know be required. Um, otherwise, it just doesn't satisfy that use case. So I think you know at its core, that's where you know inherently Fire has that flexibility. Um, you know, there's no kind of uh, no one saying that you know you have to use these resources a specific way. But if you are collaborating together, then you can mutually agree on a specific uh, profile or implementation guide, which, which would be you know much more comprehensive than just a profile on those resources. Um, and and then you know support uh, your use cases that way. So what else can you do with it? What else could be done? Maybe in addition to making it easier to get the EHRs back and forth. Uh, what else do you think you could be? I mean, internally within a sort of a hospital system or within that clinical setting, and then externally, what do you think uh, else could be done with Fire? Now that you know it's easier. Um, and you're using essentially a modern, you know, approach to, um, you know, give uh, different entities like, uh, you know, these software companies access to this underlying data. You can you can be a bit more agile in how you um, develop and support applications. You kind of see this, you know, in different spaces now. Um, you know, where you you have communities working on different use cases for Fire uh, as they pertain to SDH or care management. Um, you know, when it comes to precision medicine, I was originally a skeptic though, <laughs> when it came to, uh, fire, um, because, you know, we were using HL7, uh, V2, we're, you know, familiar with other industry standards out there to, you know, exchange data. Um, and, you know, we, I think, you know, the difference was that, um, fire, uh, um, uh, you know, was just getting adopted at a pace that you really didn't see. Um, happen uh, with those other uh, technologies, um, you know, and I think a lot of this uh, was uh, from the uh, stuff that CMS was doing, right, uh, essentially being the catalyst to adopt uh, FHIR and also, you know, then later making it a standard uh, for health ITs. You know, what the hope there is that it will empower, um, you know, other vendors to do is uh, be able to access the data It's because it's no longer siloed and develop uh, pretty creative um, applications. So if uh, you know you are at the cutting edge of precision medicine, and you know you have you know developed some you know sophisticated models, uh, machine learning models, um, uh, it, you know this is something um, you know you can essentially tap into this information and provide more prescriptive guidance that otherwise would have been difficult for you to do. How do we get to that point? I mean, beyond encouraging them, how how do we technically? get as many people as possible to the point of being able to use fire in their everyday work? I mean, you know, there's always going to be a fixed cost with adopting technology, right? So if you think of essentially what the fixed cost was with adopting computers, uh, the ROI wasn't realized immediately, right? Um, most companies were in loss, you know, when they adopted computers, you know, we're talking about billions of dollars, right? In loss. Um, but then over time, right, um, we can't see our lives any different, right? <laughs> now, I mean, we all use computers and we've all kind of seen the efficiencies, um, you know, uh, and reap 
the benefit from those. You know, what uh, gets supported ultimately, you know, from a interoperability perspective, um, you know, it it will hopefully continue to um, expand. Uh, you know, e- even though you know it's now a requirement, right, for a health IT, uh, you know, if they're certified as such um, through HHS um, or ONC uh, to support uh, Fire US Core, you know, IG specifically, um, it doesn't mean that it you know satisfying all these newer use use cases that you know we're seeing, uh, you know, that Fire could support. For one example is subscriptions, right? Um, most EHRs don't support support um, this. Uh, like, if you need to just know um, if there have been any changes that have been made to patient record, um, you can't subscribe, you know, to that information um, uh, through essentially the Fire standard, um, uh, you know, with these EHRs because they haven't ad- uh, implemented uh, that facet of uh, the standard. Um, so, uh, you know, I think. The uh, what we will see, you know, come out of this um, uh, really is uh, strongly dependent on um, the vendors and their utilization of essentially uh, this open uh, this. It's not entirely open access, but uh, this new standard where it's much easier now uh, to develop a lightweight application um, without having to invest too much in creating your own data model. Again, you can. You know, leverage fire for the uh, you know uh, definition of a lot of the uh, data elements that you would um, see you know for your use case, and then the framework itself, right? Uh, how it kind of makes it uh, easier to expose um, that information through you know your regular uh, HTTP you know as protocols. As as time goes by, you get new tech, new apps, uh, new devices, and new maybe new needs for. Um, for interoperability to sort of expand in certain directions. So what process of updating fire standards, what's the process going to look like? Um, And hoping that uh, this is a way of telling companies, you're not suddenly going to have to get a new version of something and change all the software you have. How how do you explain that to uh, clinicians and to uh, offices uh, of how things will be down the line as far as fire and how things grow? The standard is defined in such a way that you know after it reaches after say certain resources reach reach a certain level of maturity they become normative, um, which means that you know uh, you you even if you you know uh, are updating it you have to continue support um, you know some backward compatibility uh, you know with those resources so like for example patients and the lab resources were you know one of the first to become a normative standard. Um, you know, uh, because they were adopted in many sites in many countries. Um, and, uh, you know, the, so so now if I continue to make uh, updates to the fire data model framework, I mean, that's fine. But because that's a normative standard, uh, we need to continue to support some backward compatibility, right? So, you know, the evolution of fire uh, will continue to be that collaborative effort, um, you know, stewarded by HL7. And I think, you know, what they've been able to do there um, is is amazing. Um, you know, get all these uh, teams, you know, you know, across countries to collaborate uh, in, you know, supporting uh, all these different use cases. Um, and so that's the great thing. I mean, you've now are at a point where, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, taken on, um, it's been kind of being led by uh, so many different teams and initiatives. What do you think the patient experience is going to be like? 
because of implementation of fire, because of the improvements in interoperability, being able to get the health records back and forth from PCP to specialist uh, to testing center and back again. How do you think the patient experience will will evolve? What will look like uh, maybe 10 years from now? A lot of it, you know, if you- you know, uh, is kind of shifted to like these templates. Like if you, you know, use multi EHRs, I mean, they have a template for this type of patient or that type of patient. And what that means is, you know, with a few clicks, I can have a lot of that information pre-populated. Um, but, you know, if you're pre-populating a lot of this information, you know, you know, how much of it is usable, right? Um, because it's kind of just crossing out uh, some red tape that, okay, I did this, I documented that, I documented this, you know, for this patient, you know, the piece that, uh, you know, I, you know, saw a provider in a setting where, you know, they weren't using uh, EHR, it was, um, you know, they were still uh, just using a prescription pad. <laughs> and on that prescription pad, uh, they were talking to me, interacting with me and, um, you know, telling me, uh, asking me questions and just writing those down and, uh, and then, you know, uh, prescribed essentially, you know, um, what they th- felt was appropriate, you know, uh, given, um, you know, that questioning evaluation and, and just handed me that prescription, right? Now, obviously, there's a lot of problems with that because, you know, if there's, uh, you know, they may be prescribed a medicine and they're not aware that there are these drug-drug interactions, you know, uh, or, or drug allergy interactions. They may not be aware that I saw, you know, providers in these other settings and they had, you know, already captured a lot of this information already and that they could use that, right? Meaning it's also very inefficient from them, right? From their point of view, because they're having to document or ask um, or, in, you know, um, inquire or evaluate things that may have already been done, right? So from my point of view, while the experience was personal, um, you know, uh, you know, the provider was, um, you know, uh, spent a great deal of time to, you know, um, uh, get me this prescription. It was also terribly inefficient from their point of view <laughs> um, because they weren't leveraging all the information that they, you know, could have otherwise accessed uh, if they were using uh, electronic health re- record system that was already integrated with um, the uh, different care settings I had already been to. But that's just the surface of it, right? I mean, that um, fine, you have that data now, it's structured, but please get it to the point where you're able to deliver, you know, in real time, actionable analytics. I mean, this is what Kaziva, you know, focuses on, right? Uh, we spend a lot of time uh, and proud of essentially the different machine learning models that we've created. Um, we're very proud of essentially the interfaces we've created within EHRs um, to provide essentially at the point of care, uh, the providers with insights that would have otherwise been um, difficult for them to, you know, get to, Um, you know, bless, I mean, all the EHRs out there. I mean, I I think they're great, but, um, you know, I like because of fire, because smart in general as a standard, you know, applications or vendors like us are able to, you know, help providers see that, you know, they can do much more now. Uh, with those same systems and that user experience for that, from their point of view, it's continues to be seamless. But then there's the other side that deals with population health, that if you can get this information, you can get a company to concatenate and then really parse out efficiently uh, as well as they can, all the data that they have, they get more data. That's more interesting. That's more accurate uh, with various kinds of details. And it's, it's a quagmire because it's so much information, but 
if they're able to start learning how to parse these things out more efficiently, it's not just for the sake of the the patient's journey, you know, from one office to the next. It's also the data that can be used towards population health solutions. Um, and I'm mentioning that because you did, and also I, I know Koziva w- has been interested in working within um, population health as well. So, uh, if you wanted to mention that side of of interoperability solutions as well, one thing that we've always invested in as a company is interoperability. Uh, we've always um, sourced our information from various sort, uh, you know, uh, systems. So, you know, the registries, you know, public registries that are out there, or um, you know, the different EHRs, um, different claims, um, you know, engines, uh, and uh, to deliver essentially to uh, the providers a more complete view, but not just data, right? Uh, to distill specifically the actionable pieces that, you know, you can surmise from that data based on, you know, um, these evidence-based um, standards that, uh, as NCQA well knows, uh, publishes, um, but then also additional insights that we can glean from just doing machine learning. I mean, we, for example, have like an engagement score model, right? It looks at uh, various attributes, including um, the uh, patient's SDOH indicators. Um, if we try to do this you know, many years ago, it would have been difficult for us to get access to that SDOH data. But now, you know, it, you know, because many of these EHR vendors um, and systems uh, like them have adopted, you know, FHIR as a data model, um, you know, it, it's easier for us to, you know, get, uh, for example, the SDOH screening data. Um, it's easier for us to, you know, use that, um, you know, in our explicitly in our models to then, you know, raise essentially these risks um, uh, that are, you know, um, now readily available, right? You just need to support an ecosystem where you can have that variety thrive because then right things happen from that, right? You have the emergence of solutions that, you know, we could not have, you know, anticipated or planned for. Um, and, and that's, you know, the nice thing, right? You Because we have a lot of creative people in this world, um, <laughs> you know, can come up with a lot of creative solutions. Um, and so more open you can make the, uh, you know, environment for them to, you know, contribute, you know, the better. And, and FHIR has definitely done that uh, in ways that, you know, we haven't really seen um, completely, uh, you know, approaching, um, you know, possibly medicine from a different perspective, right? Because you're, you're not able to just uh, assess hypotheses in these very limited settings. You're able to you, you know, access or tap into, you know, this data that's been normalized across like millions of patients longitudinally. Um, and, you know, as that becomes more and more accurate and rich, I mean, you know, uh, the causal links you can do and the, um, you know, counterfactual analysis you can do to improve kind of the way we deliver therapy. I mean, that, I mean, that should be amazing. Koziva CTO Rosh Singh with his insights into the future of digital health. And that future is nearly here. Welcome again to Fast Facts, the part of each episode where I dish out useful information for you to share with colleagues and family. The month of August was named Gastroparesis Awareness Month in the U.S. in 2016. Gastroparesis comes from the Greek words for stomach and partial paralysis. For those experiencing this condition, the stomach basically empties too slowly. This information is provided by the nonprofit education research organization, the IFFGD, the International Foundation for Gastrointestinal Disorders. 
So now consider these symptoms. When you're hungry or after you've finished eating, do you experience any of the following? Nausea, vomiting, stomach pain, or maybe you feel full before you've actually finished eating. If you have a combination of these symptoms, you might have gastroparesis. Symptoms might even include bloating and heartburn. It's an insidious condition like that, given that these symptoms could indicate a host of different maladies. But if you're rapidly losing weight and you can't eat and you're in constant pain, it might be gastroparesis. So what causes gastroparesis? Well, nobody's really sure. Uh, possible causes that may set off this condition include a viral infection, diabetes, surgery, or even a certain mix of medications. But what we know is the longer it goes untreated, the more damage it can do. So treatments are usually nutritionally based and specific to the patient, but anything from food restrictions to rehydration to corrective surgery could be on the table, depending on how far along you are. Out of every 100,000 people, more or less, about 10 men and 40 women will have this disorder. And the symptoms can be indicators for a number of conditions. So again, reach out to your doctor if you think you have a problem. Here's a bit about a digestion-related NCQA measure. Our HEDIS measure package includes COL, a measure for colorectal cancer screening. This measure assesses adults 50 to 75 years of age who had appropriate screening for colorectal cancer with any of the following tests, an annual fecal occult blood test, flexible sigmoidoscopy every five years, colonoscopy every 10 years, computed tomography colonography every five years, stool DNA test every three years. Now, I, I don't mean to conflate colon cancer with gastroparesis, although cancer often takes advantage of scar tissue. So please, if you have a family history of digestive issues or of this kind of cancer, if you experience the symptoms we mentioned, if you see your eating habits and digestion declining over time, see a doctor, get tested, get scoped, and don't be afraid to get answers. For more on all of this, click the links I've given you in this episode's description. As we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we ask you for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime, and be sure to include Inside Healthcare in the subject line. If you're coming up empty, here's our question for this episode. Five years from now, how will you feel about sending private medical history details over the internet? And if you have a comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on our show, maybe you want to be that guest, maybe it's your boss, maybe it's a colleague, just email us and let us know. Communications at ncqa.org. And be sure to write Inside Healthcare in the subject line. Hope to hear from you soon. And that's it for episode 111 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks for joining us. This episode's done, but there are plenty that came before it to explore and investigate, and you can find us with this show at blog.ncqa.org, or find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. Whether you download the show or you stream it, if you find us, then follow us and spread the word. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. If you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter, You'll get video promos for this very show to share with your friends and colleagues. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again 
no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.